0: This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Uh, Let me pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, thank you for your word, the way it speaks to us and changes us. And that's our prayer today. We don't want an informational lesson. Um, We don't want a detached lecture But we want you to change us. We want to encounter the living God through the living word. So, Lord, would you please speak to us? Would you please uh, communicate uh, your, your will and your truth to us through this passage of Scripture? And, Lord, would you change us? Lord, I pray that you would give me grace uh, to know where to camp and where to move in this passage. And I pray that you'd fill me with your spirit to uh, preach your word truthfully, to build up your body here. And I pray that you'd give us all ears to hear, that we could be responders to truth. Not just observers, uh, but we would be responders. So Lord, help us today in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, last week, we were in Acts 6 at the beginning, and what we were talking about last week was uh, this need that occurred in the early church, which could have been a divisive situation where orphans were, uh, I mean uh, orphans and widows, I think of the two together, widows actually, were being overlooked. And uh, so God intervened and preserved the church and unified the church through the Apostles' strategy of releasing seven men to take responsibility for the care of the widows in the church. And so we covered that last week. Now the first guy mentioned in that list of seven was Stephen. So today we're going to follow right along and see Stephen's story, what happens with Stephen. Now I said in the first service that I'm preaching a message today like I have never uh, preached before, which is no promise uh, that it would be good. I don't see anybody from the first service that stuck around for seconds. But um, it's not a promise that it will be good, but it is a promise that it will be different. Last week, uh, I spoke on seven verses... And today I'm going to speak on 67 verses uh, in the same amount of time, or actually less. I spoke less on 67 than I did last week on 7 in the first service. So we're going to cover a lot of ground because it's this, it's this event in Stephen's life that I don't see chopping up into multiple weeks. It just makes sense to cover it all at once and you'll see. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, it takes eight minutes just to read the passage, so we're going to read in chunks. I'm going to read chunks and make some comments, read a chunk and make some comments, and then at the end, I'll make some application of the whole passage for all of us. So this will be a little bit, it's actually a survey, a tour of the whole Old Testament is what this is, this passage. And so I'll be your tour guide. And there'll be times where I need to just say, let's come along. You ever been on a tour and there's always somebody that wants to look like a really long time at a frog or something? And so everybody's moving and the tour guide there going say, okay, let's keep moving. We've got a lot to see in the next, uh, you know, 30 minutes or whatever it is. Well, I'm that guy. And actually, since you're not moving along, I guess the moving along, I'm talking to myself here. So I need to move along uh, quickly as we go. Um, okay, so let's start with verses 8 through 15 of chapter 6 and read this section about Stephen. And we'll change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? Okay, so we're going to look again. We're going to read a little bit and then talk about it. We're going to cover a ton of ground here today. But this is the introduction. And so Stephen is being used by God. He's being used with grace and power, it says. He's doing signs and wonders. That means miracles are happening as he's praying for people and this sort of thing. And so he is talking, and the people in the synagogue begin to argue back with him and debate with him, but they can't win. They say he's just... They don't have the wisdom that he has. So what they do in that case, if you can't uh, win the debate in that context, you just get some... Um False witnesses, so they instigate some people, and these people say, "Hey, we've we've heard him say blasphemous things about Moses." Now that's important, about Moses and about God. And so they grab him, they seize him, they physically accost him, and they take him to the council. The council is the Sanhedrin; it's seventy uh, rulers and leaders and priests in Israel, and they're the judicial body. They're the supreme court. So it's like grabbing him and bringing him before the supreme court. And when they bring him before the court, This is the same court that uh, sentenced Jesus ultimately to death. Pilate did it technically under Roman rule, but they, they condemned him to death. This is the same council that has already arrested the apostles on a couple of occasions, jailed them, and beaten them severely. So these guys are opposed to Christ and all that he's done as religious leaders. And so they get some false... Uh, witnesses to say uh, this this is super important as we go through all these verses this will be important to know this verse thirteen they set up false witnesses who said this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law so what they're accusing him of doing is speaking against the temple the holy place it's a place of God's presence and so. In Stephen's response, he's going to talk primarily about that charge, that he's speaking against the temple, the place where God is present, and that they say he speaks against the law as well. And so these are the charges against him. And so he responds to their charges by walking through all of Israel's history. And he looks at four periods in Israel's history, and he addresses what they are charging him He's going to show this, that the presence of God is not tied to the temple. He's going to prove that from the Old Testament. The presence of God is not tied to the temple. They say, you're speaking against the holy place. You're saying things about the temple. Matter of fact, Jesus said he's going to tear down this temple, they say. Well, that's not exactly what he said. Jesus said in John 2, and so probably Stephen's... Sharing what Jesus said. Jesus said that, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it. And it says he was speaking of his body, which was raised after three days. What was Jesus saying? Jesus was saying, I am the temple. The temple points to me. You tear it down in three days and I will raise it up. The temple is the place of God's presence in Jewish practice in Jewish theology. Jesus is God's presence incarnate. It just points to him. He's literally God in the flesh. So yes, Jesus did say something like that, but very different than what they're saying. And so he's going to say that, look, the presence of God has not always been in the temple. And if he can prove that from the old Testament, then we say the presence of God was in Jesus. So he's going to say that. And then he's going to talk about the law and say, Hey, you guys think I don't, I'm speaking against the law. Israel doesn't obey the law and we never have. And so uh, I think the the problem with the law is not my teaching, it's our practice. Jesus came to fulfill the law. So he's going to show that at the beginning by this comment about Jesus, that he's God's presence with us, and that Jesus fulfilled the law as well. So here's where he's going to start. He's going to start with Abraham, who's the father of the faith. This is a lot of names. So if you're new to the Bible, I know we're covering a lot in a short amount of time, but you're going to get the highlights of the whole Old Testament. Um, so that's, uh, that's hopefully that will be helpful. But it starts with Abraham. Look at verse 2. Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. but I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patri- patriarchs. So the twelve patriarchs are the twelve sons of, uh, of Jacob. So here's what he says about uh, a- Abraham. First of all, he says something to us about God. He said before there even was a people of God, before there even was an Israel, God came looking for someone to start a people. And he came to Abraham. He was Abram at the time. Now, Abraham, the Bible tells us, was an idolater. He, he worshipped other gods. And he was lived in the Chaldeans. They were notorious for worshipping the moon. So the Bible doesn't say that Abraham worshipped the moon. But it says that he worshipped other gods, and if he was like his culture, he was a moon worshipper. And so God comes to him and says to him, I'm going to make a people out of you. Follow me, go where I tell you, I'm going to make a people out of you. I'm going to give you, he had no children, I'm going to make a whole people out of you. I'm going to give you a land, and through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. So what he was saying is, Abraham, I'm coming to you, I'm appearing to you, I'm going to do something through you, and ultimately through your descendants the whole world will be blessed. What a promise. That's a promise that I'm going to send a Savior. Jesus is the one who blesses the whole world, who's a a descendant from Abraham. So what's important about that? Why is Stephen bringing that up first? Historically he is first, Abraham. But here's why it's key. Look at verse 2. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. They're saying, Stephen, you speak against the holy place. Stephen, you're talking about the place where God resides in the temple. And Stephen wants to say, God appeared out in a pagan land to a pagan people, to a pagan dude. God showed up in Mesopotamia. God's presence was with Abraham. God spoke to him. God's presence is not localized in the temple. Think about how it all began. God's presence was with Abraham and spoke to him and made a promise to him. God took initiative. The God of glory appeared. God's presence is not tied to the temple. God's presence is tied <coughs> to His people. And He was present with Abraham. And not only was He present with Abraham, but He promised There was a sign, there was a promise that he would fulfill this covenant. And he says in verse 8, it was called the covenant of circumcision. Now what is a covenant? A covenant is a legal agreement. It's sealed by vows and promises. So we don't use that word a lot, um, but we do talk about like a marriage covenant. A marriage covenant is when a, a man and a woman take a vow, a promise to be faithful to one another. And so God takes a vow or a promise to be faithful to Abraham and his people. And there's a sign of it. You know, in a wedding, maybe the, a wedding ring is a sign that shows that I'm in a covenant um, with my wife, Ginger. And so you, you exchange that vow and exchange that ring in a wedding ceremony because it's a covenant. God gave them a covenant to, to, that they should circumcise their male sons on the eighth day. And what that represented was that God had made an agreement with Abraham and his people. And here's the thing. God promised to be present with his people, to care for his people, to develop and grow his people, to be a great nation and bring a Savior, regardless of that, what they did. Ultimately, they will be faithless. As we go through the, this passage, we'll see this. They will not hold up to the covenant, but God always will. And that's what the circumcision represented, that God has made a covenant with Abraham. Now he closes talking about the 12 patriarchs, and in verse 9 we pick up there. And the 12 patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could, not, could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, (coughs) Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, and he and our fathers And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. So he accounts accounts for this, recounts this well-known story of Joseph. Starts out, tells us his brothers were jealous of him and they sold him into slavery. So what is the point of telling that? Well, look at the next verse. He sold them into Egypt, which is the pagan of all pagan nations. He sold them into Egypt, but God was with him. God had chosen Abraham. God had chosen to work through his lineage. God had chosen to work through this people. And now Joseph, rejected by his brothers, is sold into slavery, into Egypt. But God is with him. God's not just in the temple. God's not just in Israel. Before there was a temple... There was God present with His people, and here He is present specifically with Joseph in the midst of a godless nation. He was working in Egypt. In the next seven verses, Egypt is mentioned six times. The idea is God is working with His people through His people among pagan nations. And beyond that, he ministered to Joseph's father, Jacob, and his brothers. A famine occurs. uh, They don't have any food. They go down to Egypt. They find out that Joseph's now ruling Egypt. The guy they sold into slavery rules everything. And he provides for them. So God provided for his people in a pagan nation. God provided for his people by exalting Joseph to a place of responsibility now there is a theme here that emerges that will come throughout the rest of stephen's speech and it's this it's found in verse nine again the patriarchs jealous of joseph sold him into egypt the people of god reject the one who will eventually deliver them this is a theme that's going to be throughout so they reject joseph but who is joseph he's the chosen one who's going to save them save them with food, save them so that they exist. The people of God could have gone into extinction right here. They could have all died in the famine. But God raised up someone, a Savior with a small s. He raised up someone to provide for them, and that was Joseph. Yet the people of God rejected, initially rejected, the one that God provided. Next, he goes in and speaks of Moses. Moses, this is really long, so we're going to read several sections and then talk about them. 17 through 43 is, is the passage on Moses. But it says in verse 17, But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and in his Deeds. now he's going to talk a lot about moses because that was a specific charge if you'll remember he speaks against moses stephen speaks against moses our uh, you know uh, abraham's kind of the father of the faith but moses is the great prophet the lawgiver, and he speaks against moses well he's explaining the story of moses and he says that as verse 17 as the promise drew near which god granted to abraham the people increased so what was the promise that they would have their own land so there's a lot of people the egyptian i mean the uh israelites are multiplying in egypt a new pharaoh comes he doesn't know joseph who's running everything and so he starts to oppress these people ultimately he enslaves these people joseph's relatives all the um, israelites but they keep growing because god is about to do something he is about the time is drawing near for him to take them into the promised land now they're going to be enslaved for 400 years but the time is moving and so The people are multiplying there, and all of their infants are being exposed and dying according to the Pharaoh's directive. But there's this one Hebrew kid that is saved and is actually adopted by Pharaoh's daughter named Moses. Now, why is he saying all this? Because Moses, he tells us, grew up in Egypt. This, this passage talks about the first 40 years of his life. We'll see in a second. So his first 40 years, he grows up as an Egyptian. He learns all the customs. He's culturally Egyptian. He, his, his lineage is Hebrew, but he's raised uh, in Egypt. And so what he's saying is God is present with Moses. God is going to use Moses to deliver, and he does that in a pagan nation with a guy that looks pagan. I'm guessing if Moses walked in the room, he would look just like an Egyptian. You'd be able to nail him. If you were to say, hey, that guy's a real Texan, if a guy walked in with a big hat and a big belt buckle and some boots, you say, okay, you wouldn't say, wow, that guy's from Manhattan, you say, that guy is culturally from Texas, and so he was culturally in his training, he was raised in Pharaoh's house, the best teaching, the best training, he's raised in in an Egyptian culture, but God's present with a guy in Egyptian culture, matter of fact, God's going to use that guy to deliver, God's not just in the temple is what he's saying. I'm not speaking bad about the presence of God in the temple, Stephen would say. Look at our own history. God is present with his people that he has covenanted with. And we see that in Abraham. We see that in Moses. So look what happens next, verse 23. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers. That's the slaves that are in Egypt. The children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Verse 25, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Okay, so Moses here, the, uh, the cultural Egyptian, but the guy who's an Israelite by birth, he comes out to see how his people are doing. They're enslaved, and he sees an Egyptian Oppressing a Hebrew slave, and so he kills the Egyptian. And what did he think that would reveal to them? Verse twenty-five. He supposed that his brothers would understand that he was um, that he was giving them salvation. God was giving them salvation through Moses. So he's the deliverer. He's going to bring salvation. What do the Hebrews say? <clears throat> Who made you the ruler and Lord, or, uh, you know, the the ruler, ruler and redeemer over us? Who called you to do this? They resist. They reject the deliverer. With Joseph, they rejected the one that would be their deliverer. They initially reject Moses, who would be their deliverer. And so you can see what's going on. You can see the theme that he's building to the Sanhedrin, who have rejected Jesus. What he's saying is our people don't recognize when God brings a deliverer. When God brings aid and help and salvation, we don't see it. And he's going to draw the conclusion. So when he sent his son, you didn't see it. You didn't see it. So that's the case he's trying to build. So he goes out to Midian for 40 years, another pagan area. But God's with him. God goes with him. Verse 30. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire and a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. So this is 40 years later. God appears to him. So you can see what he's doing here. What the theme is, he's saying, look, God speaks outside of Israel at times because God is with his people. God made a covenant to his people, and he didn't just say, I'll dwell in a building. He made a covenant with a people is what he emphasizes here. And so he tells the story of Moses being out and an angel appearing in a burning bush, and God speaking. He said he heard the voice of the Lord, and God reveals himself, speaks of himself. Listen, this is a greater miracle and a greater revelation than anything that happened in the temple that they are standing in. God is speaking directly to Moses. Now the temple, the priests did go into the Holy of Holies once a year to offer sacrifice, but it's not recorded that God was revealing himself, that God was speaking verbally and introducing, granting revelation that would be recorded and read for thousands of years. Here today we're reading it. That wasn't happening in the temple. What happened in Midian is arguably a greater presence of God. So he's saying, you're saying the temple is a holy place and is unique? I'm saying God spoke in the desert, and that was a holy place. How do we know it? Because he said, take your sandals off. The ground you're on is holy. You're standing on holy ground. Why? Because God's present, and God's with his people, and God's with Moses, and he's keeping his covenant. He says, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in slavery. I have heard their groaning, and I'm going to deliver them through you. So they're slaves, and God's going to come and release them. Why? Because he made a covenant. He's faithful. He loves his people. He's present with his people. So look what happens next. Verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, that's a big theme, they rejected their deliverer, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent both, as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. He's saying to the, to the leaders, think about our history. Our people rejected Moses. He was the redeemer, but they, we rejected him. He was ruler and redeemer by God's hand, and we rejected him. Yet... God used him to perform wonders and signs. God used him. God brought plagues upon Egypt through Moses. God split the Red Sea and delivered the slaves through Moses. And then when they were in the desert for 40 years, God miraculously provided for them Manna. None of those places are Israel. None of those places are Jerusalem. None of those places are the temple. Yet it is God fiercely loyal to his covenant. It is God present with his people. It is God delivering them by miracles, just like Jesus did, crossing over the Red Sea, delivering them out of slavery into freedom just like these, Jesus did through His cross and resurrection, and sustaining them in the desert, miraculously feeding them and present with them, just like Jesus does for His people today. Moses is a type of Christ. He is a forerunner of Christ. He is, he is, his life and his actions are a display of the One who would come, and that's what he says. Didn't Moses say that God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers? Moses in Deuteronomy prophesied that Jesus would come. So Moses is the great rejected deliverer, but he says there's coming one after me. And that's who we're talking about as he shares Jesus. The parallels are unmistakable between Moses and Christ here. Okay, in verse 38, he goes on. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. as it is written in the book of the prophets, this is Amos, he quotes, Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the, old, in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephen, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So here he's going to begin to talk about the other charge. Remember, he said, they said he speaks against this holy place place of God's presence and he speaks against the law so now he's taking up do I speak against the law you're saying I'm speaking against the law well he points out hey guys we have been poor at keeping the law our history is rejecting the law God gave his law through Moses God spoke the law living oracles it says and what did we do we created idols our people wanted a calf that said let these gods lead us our people rejoiced in the work of their own hands when they built an idol. So when we were given the word of God, we, re- we rejected the word of God. And God gave us over to worship the host of heaven. We became idolaters even though we knew God. If there's a problem with the law, it's not what I'm saying about it, Stephen says. It's our <clears throat> failure to obey the law. Now he's about to say that Jesus came as the righteous one who obeyed the law. He's saying, I'm not speaking against the law. I'm trying to tell you the only person in history who ever obeyed the law. We're getting the law, and we're worshiping golden calves. We're, we're refusing God and the law, and so we are looking to other gods, and he had to send us into exile so that we would see our need for our loving God. So he's talking about the temple here, and he's, and, and he's talking about the law here, and he's wanting to adjust their thinking. The next thing he does is he talks about the season of the tabernacle in the temple. So we had Joseph, we had Abraham, Joseph, Moses, and this is the last uh, historical time period. It's the time period of when they had a tabernacle and a temple. Verse 44: Our fathers had the tent of witness—that's the tent of meeting or the tabernacle—in uh, the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the power of the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, this is Isaiah, "'Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me?' says the Lord." Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So now he's saying, look, here's the history of God's presence with his people through a structure where they worshipped. He's saying we had a tabernacle, a tent of meeting. God met with us there. We went in and dispossessed the land of Canaan. We got in and did the battles in the Holy Land. We had the tent of meeting. We worshipped. Then God... Uh, answered David's heart and to build a temple, and, and his son Solomon ultimately did the building, but there was a temple built for God. However, even though God endorsed and uh, designed both the temple structure and the temple worship, even though that's the case, Isaiah the prophet said, God does not dwell in a temple. How can God dwell in a building built by hands? He says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. You know, I I put up my foot, and that's planet Earth. It's like my little toe. The entire planet's under like my little toe. So what are you, you know, this molecule under my little toe, as it were, it's a metaphor. How how are you going to build something that will house all of me? It'll never happen. It'll never happen. And so he's saying, you're saying I'm speaking against the temple. All I'm trying to say is the presence of God is outside the temple. The presence of God is with the covenant people of God. And the law of God is given for our following of him, but we have broken his law. And so then he gets, he cuts to the chase and he delivers judgment on the Sanhedrin. Verse 51 You stiff necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. What's he doing? He's hammering them. Why is he hammering them? Because he wants them to wake up and say, I need a Savior. On Acts, in Acts 2, Peter spoke and told the people, you killed the Son of God. And what happened? They were cut to the heart and said, what must we do to be saved? This is not some harsh tirade against religious leaders. This is speaking truth so that God could cut them to the heart and so that they would say, I need a Savior and He is Jesus. That would be the appropriate response. They're going to kill the guy, so they didn't respond well. But this is, this is not just some angry outburst. This is God lovingly bringing a diagnosis to their heart so that they can receive the prescription of salvation which is found in Jesus. What does he say? You've rejected the Holy Spirit. We have a long history of rejecting the Holy Spirit. He says the prophets have come to bring God's law, and what have we done? What have you done? He says, You killed the prophets. A prophet would come and say, Repent, Jesus is coming, kill him. But you know what you did, Sanhedrin? When he did come and the prophecy was fulfilled? You killed God Himself. You killed the Savior, Jesus, when the one actually came to bring salvation. This is not rejection of Moses. This is not rejection of Joseph. This is rejection of God. You did not keep the law. Verse fifty three. You we did not keep the law. But he calls Jesus in verse 52, the Righteous One. Capital R, capital O, it's a title. The Righteous One Whom You Betrayed and Murdered. We did not keep the law, and when one did who came who did keep the law, we rejected him and we killed him. Jesus kept the law. Why? Because all those who would believe in Jesus, His record would be given to us. God would treat us as if we kept the whole law. If you believe in Jesus, the Bible says you are in Christ. If you turn from your sin and you see that Jesus died for our sins, was buried, was raised the third day to defeat our sins... If you believe in Jesus and by faith you trust Him, then you are said to be in Christ. You're joined. You're united. So that God relates to you as if you totally obeyed the law. They didn't do that. The righteous one who obeyed the law came. They didn't obey the law. And they killed the law keeper. They rejected the law giver, Moses. They rejected the law keeper, Jesus. And so what did they do? They rejected the very presence of God. He's saying, you are saying... That I'm talking about the holy place in an inappropriate, blasphemous matter. When God himself came, his presence, John says, tabernacled among us. When Jesus is the living presence of God, God incarnate, you rejected him. It's not me. You rejected the presence of God in Jesus. You rejected the law keeper in Jesus and are continuing to do so. So they are, he accuses them. And it's their opportunity to turn and to believe in Jesus, because Jesus gives salvation to those who will believe. But they don't. Verse 54, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. They snarled like animals. I mean, I've had people mad at me. I've deserved to have people probably more mad at me than they have been. But I've had people mad at me. I've never had anybody grind their teeth like an animal at me, about to eat their prey. That I've never had. But he did. Verse 55, full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He crossed the line there. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So here is Stephen, and they're yelling at him, snarling at him, grinding his teeth, and he has a a vision. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I can't remember a time in the Bible where Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. It, it, maybe it happens elsewhere, but I don't remember it. This is the only time. Jesus is usually seated at the right hand of God. But Jesus is now standing up. Why? Well, it doesn't say, it could be a couple of things. He could be advocating for the Father. S- Stephen is being judged and condemned and viewed as guilty. And Jesus may be standing as an advocate saying he's innocent and declaring his innocence. Jesus said if you deny me before man I'll deny you before my father in heaven but he is confessing him before man so Jesus may be confessing that this is my this is my child before the father in heaven or it may be that he's standing to welcome him it could be that he's standing to welcome the first martyr the first person that has given their life for faith in Christ we don't know but it's a good sign Jesus is he's standing up for Jesus and Jesus is standing for the message that he is proclaiming and saying that it's true well they hear that and when you say Jesus is at the right hand of God and that he's standing that's blasphemy to them so they take him out and stone and this is illegal the Romans had the right of execution which is why they killed Jesus and the, the Jews do not but they just go out and kill him they stone him they have to take off their garments to do so why is that? Because stoning someone wasn't throwing three rocks and someone died. It was a long, sweaty process. And so the people who are going to stone him, the witnesses to his crimes, take off their garments because they're going to get a workout, throwing rocks at him until he's dead. And so they lay their garments at the feet of Saul, who will be a big player in the rest of Acts. That affects Saul. He sees this, and the Bible tells us later that that had an impact. Ultimately, that, he tells that as part of his testimony later. And so he imitates his savior. He says, "Lord, receive my spirit," just like Jesus did. He says, "Father, don't don't condemn them, forgive them." That's what Jesus said when he was executed unrighteously. And so there's Stephen's story and he dies and is with the Lord. So how does this apply to us today? It's a history lesson of the whole Bible, whole Old Testament, but how does it apply? Well, here's I think a big idea, a big idea from it, and it's this that religious people need Jesus. He is offering them the truth of Christ and they're rejecting it. They are religious. They are moral. They are externally clean and righteous and pure, and yet they don't see Christ. And the whole point is, not only are they blind, Israel's been blind throughout its history and did not recognize its saviors. It did not recognize the provision that God was providing for them, and it resisted the very ones at time that were called by God to deliver them. Religion has a way of blinding. Self-righteousness causes us not to see Christ. You know, if I were to ask you today, tell me someone that you know who really needs the gospel. I want you to tell me somebody you know personally, that if we're praying, you we say, this person really needs the gospel of Jesus Christ to receive forgiveness of sins, who would you say? My bet is that most of us would say somebody committing the worst sins that we can think of. So if the guy at the office who's a serial adulterer that's cheating all the time on business trips, cheating on his wife, doesn't care about his marriage, is just all about himself, uh, he's just a, uh, a hedonist, lives his life for the God of sexual pleasure. That guy needs Jesus. That guy does need Jesus, by the way. But that's who, where we'd start. Or maybe you know someone who's done something really bad, a criminal. Maybe you, know someone who, maybe you know someone who's imprisoned, someone who's stolen, some, maybe you know someone who has uh, murdered or read about someone who's murdered or raped, and you say, those are terrible crimes. That person who did that needs Jesus, absolutely. I think if I asked you, who do you know who most needs the gospel, I don't think you would pick out a religious person who's morally, externally more righteous than you, who keeps the rules better than you do, who knows the Bible better than you do. I don't think many of us would say that person needs the gospel, and that's the very people in this passage. It's people whose religion blinds them from Jesus. It's people whose external performance blinds them from the saving grace of God. It's people who have it together externally, but not internally. They've got the signs that they're God's people, they just don't have the heart. I mean, what does he say to them in verse 51? He says, You're uncircumcised in heart. What does that mean? That's not a surgical procedure when you go in and do something to your physical heart. He's talking about your soul. He's saying, You've got the external sign that you're God's people, males with circumcision. You have the external sign, but it's not real. You don't have a changed heart. That's what he's saying to them. He's saying your religious stuff, the temple, the law, the practices, they're from God. But you're so busy doing the right stuff that you don't see your need for Jesus. You're so busy doing good things in your mind that you missed God. And we've always missed God this way, is what he says. Go back to the beginning. God comes to rescue and deliver people who can't rescue and deliver themselves. God comes to initiate relationship like Abraham. God comes to make a one-way covenant of grace towards people that could never keep the covenant. And so walking with God is receiving the love of God, the grace of God, the faith of God, the, the faith in God. Walking with God is not doing all the things that commend you to God. It's realizing that you can't and receiving. And yet they have not done that. They have all of these things that blocked them from God. So how is it for you today in your heart? I mean, really in your soul with God, is there life there? Is there genuine life? Have you ever met Jesus in a way that you're being changed from the inside? There's an affection for Him. There's a desire to worship Him. There's a desire to follow Him. Not, not merely rules but a desire to follow Him personally, which is obviously expressed in acts of obedience, but it's Him. A desire to serve and worship, a desire to walk with Him, a desire to worship Him, a desire to tell others about Him. Is it real in your life? Do you come to Him with love? Or are you doing religious stuff with a cold heart? Are you doing religious stuff with blind eyes? How is it in your heart with Jesus? Well, I'm at church, and I'm glad you're... That's great. This is the place to be to find out about the Lord. Any Bible-preaching church. I'm glad you're here. That's wonderful, but that's not the question of how is it with your soul. I'm at church. These guys were at church more than any of us. They live practically down at church, and they didn't see their need. Well, I was at youth group last night. Great! Great! And great that your parents might see their need for the Lord. But do you? The love of God is being extended to you. The grace and mercy of Christ that you can know Him. Not just know an external way to live, but know the living Savior who changes you from the inside out. Well, I'm in a community group. Excellent. I've been reading my Bible. That is, that is the way to find God. But listen, these guys in the Sanhedrin have forgotten more about the Bible than you will ever know. They had the Bible, and yet it took this guy Stephen to go up and open up the Bible to them and say, yeah, you guys know all the Bible. You legislate the Bible in a Supreme Court. You teach the Bible. You've memorized the Bible. You're the authorities on the Bible. But you don't even see that the Bible points to Jesus. Because your Bible reading and your Bible knowledge is actually a barrier to God. Now, I want to be careful here. I'm not saying that reading, you can read too much Bible. You don't need the Bible. You just need God. No, the Bible opens our heart to God. So we should read the Bible a lot. That's good. But it's so that it shows us the Lord, not so that we're right with the Lord. We don't say I'm right with the Lord because I'm reading my Bible. I'm right with the Lord because I know about God. I'm right with the Lord because I'm memorizing Scripture. I'm right with the Lord through Jesus who has made me right with the Lord, and opened my eyes so that when I read the Bible, it tells me of His grace and of His mercy to me. Well, I, I don't know. When I was a kid, I prayed a prayer. I was baptized. If that was real, that is glorious. Glorious. But if your life's not changed today and hasn't been for years because of that, that's what He's saying to them. You're uncircumcised of heart. You're unbaptized of heart. Circumcision is a sign that we're part of the people of God in the Old Covenant. The New Covenant sign is that when you come to faith in God, when you believe in God, then you are baptized as the sign that you're part of God's family, that you're part of His covenant family. But if you're not really born again, if you're not really a believer in Jesus, then you just got publicly bathed or wet. I mean, that's all you did. You just got wet in front of everybody. Nothing really happened. And so we could be unbaptized of heart. Now, you, you can pray a prayer as a young kid, and it's very genuine. You're saved. Absolutely. I'm not causing anybody to doubt their salvation. I'm just saying we live in a world where about 87% of everybody you meet in Dallas prayed a prayer at age 8 at Vacation Bible School, and now they're okay. And that's being that's having the external understanding without the internal transformation that comes by Grace. I mean, do you see the gospel in this passage? He's saying that God gave his law, verse 53, but we did not keep it. So God sent the law keeper, Jesus, to obey it in our place so that if we believe in him, we're we're forgiven, we're credited with his righteousness. What does he say? He says God's presence with us was in Jesus. So you can turn from your sin to Christ, you can believe in him, you can receive new life. You can have your sins forgiven. You can receive power. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. You don't have to go to a building, a temple to encounter God. He's in the Scripture and He's in us. And He's in us corporately as we gather. He's saying you can know the very presence of God. They almost had a superstitious view of the temple. Like you met God there and He's saying, No, God, is, is Jesus has been resurrected. He's alive. His Spirit's poured out. You can know Him. Do you see this, that the access to God, the relationship with God, to be a child of God comes through Jesus and not religious obedience? And so if you're not a Christian, this is really good news for you. It's good news if you are too. But if you're not, it's great news. It means that you could never do anything to earn a relationship with God, but He comes to us in the love of Jesus Christ and offers Himself to us to be freely received as we believe in Him and trust in Him as our Savior, and He gives us new life. What about if you are a Christian? Well, this is very, very relevant to us. Because here's the, real, here's the, here's the reality. We don't get to God through our works, but we don't remain with God because of our works either. I, I think that many of us believe that. We believe that under the surface. We don't believe that overtly. I mean, I don't think anybody who's a Christian or at least an inform, somewhat informed Christian would come up and say, yeah, today I'm here. I've got the favor of God as a Christian because I obeyed Him really well this week. And so I, I, He accepts me based on what I did. I don't really think any Christian probably logically would verbally say, I'm right with God because of all of my actions. I don't think so. But... At times we feel the disfavor of God, the distance of God, the wagging His finger at us. We feel unapproved. We feel, just kind of keep your distance. We feel like maybe we're in timeout for a little while, while God just sort of stays away. We feel that God is not really for us. He loves everybody else in here, He's for everybody else, but He's not really for me. Why? because probably I haven't done something, or I have done something wrong. And so we can take a works righteousness and think that my ongoing relationship with Jesus Christ, my standing before God today, is based on my righteousness. So I didn't get in the door. Yeah, okay, I was converted by grace, but from here on out, it's what I bring to the party. And so we can sort of feel that. And this message says to us, if you feel distant and you feel dry from God, uh, dry with God, don't run from Him. Run to Him. Run to the law keeper, Jesus Christ. Run to the presence of God, Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit and through His Word. Run to Him realizing, run to the covenant keeper. Well, I, I'm not a faithful, I'm, I wasn't faithful to the Lord this week, so I know He's kind of opposed to me. Here's what the Bible says. When we are faithless, He is faithful. That's our standing before God. Well, I blew it this week. I, I'm drifting from the Lord. I mean, I, I had some other idols come up in my heart. I'm not here to say, that's okay. That's not what the Bible says. Stephen and say, that's okay. But here's what he said. If that's where I've been at this week, that's where God's people have always been. The problem is, when God brought a deliverer, they didn't want that. They stood in their own righteousness. So have I drifted? Have I been confused? Have I sinned? Did I look to an idol? Yes. So what do I do? I get the covenant keeping God in my view. I say He remains faithful even when I'm faithless. That doesn't mean I can go be faithless or should want to go be faithless. That means I should run into the open arms of the faithful Savior who obeyed for me, who suffered and died for me, who was raised for me, who is present with me, who obeyed the law for me and now is speaking His Word to me and is transforming me and is relentlessly holding me in His grip because He's covenant keeping God. That's what I do. And so th- this answers to us, how do we relate to God? Both to get converted and both to walk with him along the way. And so while none of us probably as at least, in, you know, basically taught Christians would say, I'm saved by my works. My status with God is I'm a good boy. So the good God loves the good boy. No. No. But now that I'm a Christian, if I'm not the good boy, God will distance... God doesn't love me. God doesn't approve of me. No, my standing is in Christ. And now He changes me. And I do sin. And when I do, I come back to the God who is faithful. And that kind of faithfulness, that kind of love, that draws our hearts. That changes from the inside. The external things, am I doing all the external stuff? That that doesn't appeal to the heart. Uh, That appeals to the flesh to do enough to justify myself before God. What appeals to the heart is to see the glorious Savior and the loving Father and the ever-present Spirit for the believer and say, He's drawing me to Himself. He invites me because He has bound Himself to His people by covenant. Here's the New Testament. I will never leave or forsake you. He's bound himself to us by the new covenant, not because of the blood of a lamb, not because an animal was killed, but because of the blood of Jesus, his own son. He's bound himself. And he's bound himself to us through his word as well. The scripture says his word, the flowers fade, uh, his, his word will never, never cease to be true. It will accomplish what he wants to accomplish, and it will never pass away. No, it was the Sanhedrin that had the wrong view of the holy place and the presence of God and the law. It was Stephen that had the right view because he said, it's in Jesus, it's in Christ that we find our life. May that be true for us today, whether you're an unbeliever or a believer. Wherever you are on your journey, the answer is ultimately the same. To turn and see the one who is our everything, Christ. Let's pray you've been listening to a message from Grace Church for more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurch frisco dot o r g